Welcome to One Decision, the podcast that looks at the choices made that have shaped the world. This month, China has been marking the 25th anniversary of the handover of Hong Kong from British rule back to China. It was a ceremony not so much reflecting the island city, but of Chinese nationalism and the power of the Chinese Communist Party. For the occasion, President Xi crossed into Kowloon Bay, leaving the Chinese mainland for the first time since before the start of the COVID-19 pandemic. However, for many Hong Kongers, it was not a day of celebration. Samuel Chu is a Hong Kong-born American activist, founder and president of the non-profit group Campaign for Hong Kong. His father, a retired pastor, was one of the leading figures behind the Occupy Central movement, the pro-democracy mass movement that sparked the Umbrella Revolution in Hong Kong back in 2014. As the handover anniversary came around, we caught up with Samuel to hear how he had been reflecting on the significance of the date and the 25 years that have passed. So the backstory is that my father was, uh, I was actually there during the first million Hong Kongers march in May of 1989. My family was intimately involved with the organizing of the supportive protests in Hong Kong. Uh, in fact, uh, my father was one of the founding member and director of the Hong Kong Alliance, which for the past 30 plus years until it disbanded last year, uh, was the group that was responsible for the annual vigil commemorating Tiananmen Square in Victoria Park uh, in Hong Kong. Um, as part of that, my father also actually was the architect and the organizer the, the, behind the Underground Railroad that smuggled the uh, students and protesters who escaped from Tiananmen Square on June 4th. So um, he was the one who helped put together the smuggling operation and then uh, connected with Western um, government uh, to resettle them into you know France and, and the US and, and, and Britain. Um, and so at the end of you know the 1989, I think it was pretty clear that both from I think my family perspective, but also from the British government and other um, various Western government that they had concern about our family safety, particularly for my dad. And so that was a huge factor in terms of sending um, me away uh, to the U.S. just in case something did happen to my family. Uh, my family, um, on the other hand, actually stayed in Hong Kong and continued to actually live there. I, I did go back, obviously, you know, for summer vacations and uh, and other sort of uh, special occasions. But I am the only person in my family who stayed in, who came to the U.S. stay in the U.S. Uh, and little did I know that uh, the last time I traveled there was in uh, December 2019, which turned out to be the very last trip that I made uh, and probably for a long while. Interesting. I, I really want to ask you about 2019 because that was a really, really important year. But I just want to I want to go back a little um, because I think we should explain to our listeners the reason why you are an activist to this day and the reason you work on pushing for right and the restoration of freedoms on the islands. And uh, before talking to you today, I watched the handover ceremony, um, which was televised around the world uh, back in July 1997. And it was full of everything you'd sort of expect uh, that had any kind of involvement by the Brits. There was lots of pomp and circumstance. There was a band playing and parades. 
uh, Chris Patton, who was the, the last governor of Hong Kong. He was there. Prince Charles was representing the Queen. And then you had uh, the newly elected Prime Minister, Tony Blair. He was there with his wife. Also, Margaret Thatcher, uh, I saw. Now, she hadn't been in power for a few years, but she had been in charge when Britain made the negotiated settlement with Beijing, known as the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration, which she signed with the then Premier of China at the time, Chao Tsiang. And on the stage, there were these two massive flags side by side. You had the British Union Jack flag being taken down to the tune of God Save the Queen. And then you had the flag of the People's Republic of China being raised slowly up uh, to the Chinese national anthem. Uh, Prince Charles looked particularly glum uh, at that part. And I thought it was a curious and hugely uh, symbolic moment. The former world global power with an empire spanning the world now in decline and then the new rising China, the new rising power. Do you remember how you felt watching that? Uh, there is a, a, a saying, actually, uh, uh, about the 97 handover, where um, in the moment in between the Union Jack being lowered and the Chinese flag going up, those 10 seconds, some would say, was the only time in history where Hong Kong existed. Because it was in between Hong Kong being a colonial state and then Hong Kong being this semi-autonomous uh, region that now belonged to China. And I think the scene that you describe, I remember very clearly and vividly, you know, the, 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 the Prince Charles moment where he talked about, the, you know, Hong Kong is now in, in the hands of Hong Kongers. Um, and I, I remember so vividly and poignantly that who was missing on stage were Hong Kongers. Here's two countries and leaders of both governments and all these pop and circumstances. Um, and they didn't bother to ever actually consider what Hong Kongers themselves wanted. And I think that is at the, at the heart of why this whole, uh, you know, why we're where we are today. Right. And, and so would you say that is, that is kind of the moment where things started going wrong for Hong Kong. I mean, the Brits were able to guarantee Hong Kong's rights and civil civil liberties, and they acted as a bit of a buffer against China's reach and control. And then we all we saw those freedoms start to erode from that point. But there was there was also that curious element um, in the joint declaration, which basically said that Hong Kong would enjoy its freedoms and its civil liberties. Uh, for a period of 50 years after the handover. And I find that curious because how was it expected to work when that period came to a close? I mean, it would snap back from yeah. democracy to autocracy. I mean, were Hong Kongers sceptical about this, uh, this negotiation that had been arranged without their input, as you say? Was that ever thought of as a good idea? Was it, was it ever going to end well? Yeah, so I think, uh, you know, just going back to your point that I, I think that this started all the way back to the beginning of uh, the, the start of the negotiation in the late uh, 70s and early 80s of when there's beginning, you know, rumors of, of 
the desire for China to take back and end this lease uh, that uh, Hong Kong was under, uh, that no Hong Kongers were meaningfully involved in the conversation from the start. I remember actually there were moments I was still living in Hong Kong. Uh, I remember news coverage of delegations, a representative of Hong Kong uh, people who tried to go and take part and, and, and voice the desire and, and, um, and opinions of Hong Kongers during the negotiation and all the way leading up to the signing. In fact, they went to the UK to try to get meetings with uh, Margaret Thatcher and, and, and other leaders of the party and Tony Blair, I think, later on. But they were just basically ignored. I think the people who were involved and part of the uh, negotiation um, and then later on drafting of the basic law and the city's many constitutions thought of 50 years as being not a runway for Hong Kong to become more like China and then eventually you know get incorporated 50 years was the pathway where China the mainland was going to become more like Hong Kong and thus become more like the Western world and that's what the 50 years really was a buffer for, not as a way of saying that, um, you know, somehow, you know, Hong Kong was going to give up its autonomy and basic freedom and human rights and freedom of speech. But that China, that the mainland, the People's Republic of, of China was going to adopt all of those things eventually to become more like Hong Kong at the end of the 50 years. Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. I mean, the hindsight is a wonderful thing but back then we didn't have Xi Jinping it was uh, Cao Ziyang and it was Margaret Thatcher it was a totally different time and Hong Kong has made it less than half of that time period before it has completely lost all of its freedoms but we'll, we'll we'll get to that i just uh one last question before we move on to, to to more present days what did you want to do for a career before these events took place that changed the course of your life i think i was always taught that uh from watching my father who uh helped advocate for rights as a minister as a pastor not just within the, the walls of the church but what matter to them day to day. And I would say that if you ask my father today, you know, where his political activism started, what led him to, you know, to become an organizer at the Tiananmen Square and build that underground railroad and then later on get arrested and convicted for the 2014 umbrella movement, he would actually just say that he just went where the people are and that their day to day life and concern became his priority as a spiritual leader, that it wasn't something that he could ignore. Interesting. Yeah. And, and you mentioned the, the 2014 uh, umbrella movement. And so I want to, I want to talk to you about that. Um, you mentioned, of course, your father, he was central to, to those protests, and they were sparked by the imposition of this new bill on extradition. Um, where were you where, when those protests were taking place? And how did you feel? Were you optimistic? Um, were you worried? Were you thinking there's only one way this can end, but it's important for us to make our views known anyway? So I think that you know it's helpful to remember that there's uh, you know people I think who have seen and watched sort of 
Hong Kong, there's millions of people on the street in Hong Kong over the past five, ten years uh, are, are, are constantly sort of amazed by the mobilizations of Hong Kongers. But that this this is in the DNA of Hong Kong. That, you know, again, in 1989, a million Hong Kongers showed up in, in May of 89 and supported the Tenement Square students. I was there. And, and, and that really, I think, is in the DNA of all of us. Um, one, because I think uh, it's funny because you know, Hong Kong is a very small place, as, as most of you are aware. Uh, a million Hong Kongers marching is actually not really marching. It's, it's more just like standing still for most of the day um, because you can't really go the whole very city far just standing with up. a million people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah and, uh, and literally just standing up. Uh, but I, I think that it's important for people to remember that this has been going on um, regularly in Hong Kong. You know, there were, uh, since 89, almost annually, there have been large-scale protests. And part of it, I think, is because Hong Kong never enjoyed any other form of public democratic uh, rights, right? That uh, even now, you know, Hong Kongers really never had the opportunity to fully exercise uh, voting rights. There was no other expression, way for them to uh, speak out other than this large-scale way of taking to the streets. I wanted to ask the the protest in 2014 would you would you describe it as an independence movement because I remember at the time I remember interviewing protesters about what they what they wanted and referring to it as an independence movement and a few of them said that this isn't about independence we don't want independence we just want the one country two systems policy to be respected by Beijing and we want that to be actualized in a way that it really isn't at the moment. And I think that that is accurate. Um, when again, the when Benny and my father and Kim and started Occupy Central, you know, a year before twenty fourteen, leading up to the umbrella, the ask was never about independence. It was about what was promised to Hong Kongers in the Basic Law and the George Declaration that under one country two system, that Hong Kongers would get to choose their own leaders. And that, that was the only thing that, and that's why it was such a remarkable movement if you go back to 2014 to think about during the early days and then for three months when people uh, were on the street, there was a remarkable unified agenda on the street, right? That it wasn't, you know, splinter into all kinds of directions. It was always about the right of universal suffrage to select their, their, their chief executive. And that I think that that was what made it so remarkable is that millions of people came on the street and and you know sometimes I I, I look back and, and 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 think about just um, how much of that was um, just about holding those in power to their words. I was there when the first day when you know close to a hundred tear gas grenades was fired in September 2014, where for the very first time that tear gas was deployed on Hong Kongers, on Hong Kong soil, and that I think the crackdown and the follow up after in the aftermath really I think demonstrated and showed the people of Hong Kong that this was not a government in Hong Kong that represented them, that spoke for them. 
And so that kind of breach of trust, I think, is extremely important to keep in mind when 2019 came around. And in fact, I was there actually uh, at the end of 2018 and the beginning of 2019 because my father and Benny and others were on trial for the role that they played in the 2014 protests. And I vividly remember uh, I was in the courtroom every day that they the trial had to you know uh, was taking place and. Um, when eventually, uh, as we all expected, they were then convicted and then sentenced to prison for organizing peaceful protests. Um, I remember a reporter had asked me, uh, this was in, in the early days of 2019, what I thought and my feelings about the verdict. And I said that, well, I actually feel very fortunate that my father had a chance to speak publicly and have the trial be aired and um, the content be shared in real time that I could tweet in the courtroom while it was happening. Because I said, if you imagine if this has taken place in the mainland, the verdict would have been the same, but we would have not have, have any access to the proceeding. And we would not have known and there would not have been representation for my father and others in the defendant doc. And I probably would have never seen my father ever again. Mm, that, that was the main concern uh, of most of the people that we, sp we had spoken to. Uh, at the time because of course there were so many dissidents and so many pro-democracy activists who lived in Hong Kong because until that point they knew that they were out of the reach of the Beijing authorities and that they would not have access to due process if if that had changed and so the the wave of protests in Hong Kong at that time huge, huge numbers of people. And it went on for months. And it wasn't really until the pandemic that they began to die down, wasn't it? I mean, COVID really sort of snuffed out the protest movement, didn't it? Well, I, I would put it slightly differently. I, I think that um, it turns out that COVID was a, was a, a really helpful partner for authoritarian regimes, it turns out that uh, because, uh, yes, in Hong Kong today, and, and I think partly because of the under the guise of, of the pandemic and, and COVID control, the Hong Kong government was able to essentially outlaw, even before the implementation of the national security law, to ban all public gathering. Um, and the, the first million people's march for the extradition bill happened in June of 2019. And then a couple weekends later, there was two million Hong Kongers. And, and that's you know almost a third of the population in Hong Kong. I think it's hard for people in the US and, and around the world or anywhere to imagine a third of their population doing anything together at the same time, at the same place, uh, for any reason. I imagine Taiwanese watching what has been happening in Hong Kong are extremely nervous and concerned about what lies in store for them. And so that brings me to the question, how is Taiwan, in your opinion, different from Hong Kong? And from your perspective as a Hong Konger, what is, is what happened to your city an inevitable lesson that will eventually have to be learned by Taiwan? I think that the people of Taiwan see 
as I saw in 89, the closing and the crackdowns and the repression as being part of the future unless they're willing to fight and resist. Um, and I think that, you know, we're also in a moment in history now where what has been ongoing and unfolding in Ukraine add another layer of that um, uh, narrative and, and that urgency of uh, not ever believing and trusting that authoritarian regime would respect uh, negotiation and historic agreements and treaties uh, globally and that not to be naive about the extent to which uh, dictators would be willing to go to assert their control and, and, and authority. Samuel Chu with a warning for Taiwan. My co-host Sir Richard Dearlove joins us now for his reflections on Hong Kong 25 years on. So Richard, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Samuel Chu. Um, I guess I want to start off firstly a lot of modern Hong Kong and its fate was was written back in 1989. Did you take me back to to the the time of the the Tiananmen Square protests? Where were you when when those were going on, and what what do you remember from? Oh from God, that I remember time? the whole thing incredibly well. Um, no, I I was in. Well, actually, I was chief of station in Switzerland. Um, during Tiananmen and um, it was extraordinary because you know one was aware that you know the Chinese state was on the cusp possibly of losing control um, or that's what it looked like from outside it I think it was quite clear that the leadership wouldn't risk a political meltdown and you know they gave the signal for the army to intervene and you know after that it's history um but obviously because the events were so exceptional one followed it quite closely and i mean what you have to bear in mind as well is that one saw it at the time in the context of you know what had happened in russia and the end of the cold war uh, and it looked for a period you know as the whole of the communist bloc both sides of it were in a precarious situation and close to falling apart um, but of course the Chinese pretty rapidly did by being incredibly ruthless establish re-establish control that's interesting do you do you think the government was part of the government response to those protests was influenced by what was happening in the Soviet Union and it and it and, it, and the way it sort of gradually was being dis dismantled well, I think that the Chinese leadership took one look at what happened in Russia and thought, my God, you know, the same thing could happen here if we don't assert our authority. And of course, you know, China potentially is much more chaotic, I think, um, and, and, and maybe socially less cohesive. And the complete breakdown in China would have been would have been just very extreme in, 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 in terms of the social and political dislocation. But uh, I mean, it, it, I, I think the scars of Tiananmen ran very, very deep. 
and um, I think certainly there was a period of time when you know Chinese officialdom, because I mean in that capacity working in Geneva in the UN, one had lots of interface and contacts um, with Chinese officials. They were extremely nervous about the whole situation. They didn't want to talk about it. Um, you know, you could see the the, the anxiety uh, and the concern as to you know what what would happen, how it affect them, what was happening to their families in China, all those sorts of issues. Mm. And and did you try to talk to any of the officials? Then they would just refuse to engage on. Well, it was a long subject. time ago, and I, I um, yeah, I think one did. I, I mean, I, I I had various interlocutors in the Chinese mission who I used to see from time to time socially, but they pretty much clammed up quickly. Uh, and, and, you know, you could feel them sort of circling the wagons and being very defensive and, and, and then becoming sort of socially unavailable. So... Um, mm. That's interesting you mentioned that you had Chinese interlocutors. Were they specific representatives uh, representatives from Chinese intelligence who you would maybe speak to, or were they diplomats, or were they security services? Well, I think I'm not really don't want to go into too much detail, but I mean, obviously there were Chinese intelligence. But we want you to go into detail, in... Richard. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's put it like I can I can explain to you how Chinese intelligence operated overseas. I mean, basically there were two two strands. So there's what's called 2PLA, that's the Second People's Liberation Army, which is the intelligence part of the Chinese military. So most of the Chinese attaches, military attaches and, and, and attache staff were 2PLA staff. And what had happened in China was that Deng, Deng Xiaoping had favoured military intelligence and had, as it were, made... 2PLA, the primary representatives of the Chinese intelligence arm overseas. Um, the other organization, of course, is uh, and was then the Ministry of State Security, the MSS, uh, which, which in a way is the larger and more important organization because it, it, it also covers all the internal security issues in China. But of course, it, so would that be the equivalent to MI5? In part, yes, but it has an intelligence overseas arm as well. Um, so I mean, you, the two. But what happened was that Deng Xiaoping favoured two PLA and made them the primary intelligence representatives outside China. But the Ministry of State Security was still there. I mean, what what happened was the Ministry of State Security got got some somewhat pushed out of um, the embassies as a central intelligence arm and operated mostly under journalistic cover. So at the time, if you met Chinese journalists, I mean, f official Chinese journalists, they, it was possible, probable, that they might be Ministry of State Security officers, MSS officers. Uh, and, and that sort of division was certainly <clears throat> reflected in the community um, in um, Beijing. And actually, post-Tiananmen, I, I, because of the role that the military played, I would say that um, 2PL, 2PLA, uh, the, the, the military intelligence people, became more dominant, more important, uh, and the MSS people got more marginalised. I mean, I think 
I, I'm I'm out of date now. I think I think what's happened is that the MSS have sort of re-established themselves uh, with the changes in Chinese leadership since, and are the more important um, overall intelligence organization now. Um, but I mean that that that's a long time ago. The other thing that is relevant to our discussion is that later on during the negotiations with the Chinese for the, the joint declaration with relation to Hong Kong I actually went to negotiate the um, security uh, aspects of that agreement with the Chinese. Uh, and in fact, what that amounted to was the closure, uh, closing down of Hong Kong special branch. Uh, and making arrangements for the Chinese to take it over after the uh, handover ceremony. And um, I, I, I was the guy who went to Beijing and negotiated that with the Minister, with the Minister of State Security. Uh, That's then, so interesting because my, my, my next question to you was going to be what was Hong Kong to the British intelligence services back then? Was it a sort of an outpost uh, to, to monitor China? Was it a place you spoke to activists? What was the what was the operation there at that time before the handover? Well, I'm not simply going to go into too much detail again, um, except to say that Hong Kong, you know, was important as an international trading city and a global outpost in Asia, obviously, it had a huge sort of traffic through, which was both commercial uh, and um, national. And you know, it was an important outpost for the Chinese sort of having that foot in the West. And it was an important outpost for the West in having a foot in China, if you see what I mean. Um, so, I mean, Hong Kong what was to that extent important to the UK, but also important to the Americans uh, and to others because of its 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 very unusual status. Um, yeah, I mean, I I, I uh, I'm not revealing any secrets if I say that um, it 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 was an important window both in both directions for China and for the West for inevitably um, and. Uh, that that situation, of course, after independence, uh, well, I, sorry, after the handover was likely to change, which of course it did. So, uh, handing over the the special branch in Hong Kong, what what exactly did that involve? Well, basically, um, what happened was that. We, you know, special branch was, was closed down. I mean, um, and the Chinese officers who worked in, in special branch uh, were were largely resettled uh, in the West because it was impossible for them to continue to stay and work for the incoming uh, Chinese government. Um, and of course, the, the the Western officers who were part of Hong Kong Special Branch obviously left as well. But I mean, the organisation was closed. But I mean, part of the closure was an agreement that these people should be allowed to leave and were resettled, which which at the time uh, did happen. Um, 
and uh, you know, I, 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 I was in Beijing. I can't remember for about ten days, having a whole series of meetings with officials from the MSS. Um, it, it was a bizarre and interesting, uh, a unique experience, I think. And um, I mean, I got treated as though I were a Brit British government minister. I mean, I was driven around in flashing police convoys. And I mean, the trouble is that the you know the the Chinese in the situation like that mirror image. So if you're a senior Western intelligence official, they treat you as a sort of super VIP. <laughs> Um, no, it, it, it was a very peculiar and, and, and unusual period of time. And then afterwards, I flew down to Hong Kong. Um, and Chris Patton was still governor, of course, to report to Chris on my discussions and what we had agreed in principle with the Chinese. I mean, we had a very bizarre, um, experience when I was leaving Beijing because we got to the airport and I was booked on a commercial flight to fly to Hong Kong. When when we got to the airport, we were intercepted by the Ministry of State Security and said, we would like, you know, to have a further round of meetings with you in the airport before the plane leaves. And I said, well, fine. Of course, if you want to go over everything again, which they did. So they took us off to a conference room and I said to them, well, you know, I don't want to particularly miss my plane. It's going to be very inconvenient. And they just said, the plane's not leaving without you. <laughs> so we were then in a meeting which had gone, went on for at least three hours, maybe longer. <laughs> the plane spent, you know, with all the passengers on board, was sitting for three hours at the gate. And they just held oh, the plane. Oh, my goodness. And then, of course, when I arrived on the plane, you know, I was about as, I mean, all the passengers were absolutely fuming and they just couldn't. I was going to say, was there a round of applause? <laughs> it was really awful. <laughs> Quite embarrassing walking onto the road. If any of our listeners were on a plane in Hong Kong pre-1997 that was held on the tarmac for three hours, it was because the head of MI6 was having meetings with the Chinese <laughs> and you can blame him for your delay. <laughs> yeah. Actually, I, it was before I became chief. I, I was the sort of number two mm. when I negotiated that. Um, the future head it, of MI6. It, it, yeah. it was extraordinary. And the other thing that happened during one of the formal meetings with the Minister of State Security, we were in the, we were in the um, sort of official uh, state meeting rooms in what translates in Chinese to the fishing platform, which is you know where the whole leadership of the Communist Party um, hang out, where, where their sort of offices are. Um, and, and where some of their apartments are. Anyway, so we were sitting in the parallel anti-Macassar chairs um, next to each other. You know, you don't sit opposite, you sit side by side. You've probably seen the photographs of, of, of these negotiations. And um, there's a whole team of very elegantly dressed Chinese ladies who are obviously chosen for their statuesque appearance who are there serving you, you know, hot towels and cups of tea and, and, and other things. And, and, and one of these poor girls, uh, I felt so sorry for her, managed 
to knock over my tea, um, <laughs> which then <laughs> down near burnt oh, no. my leg. Um, and the 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 the, the, the minister of state the minister of state security clapped his hands and the whole team uh were, were ushered out of the room and disappeared and replaced by a complete the new team <laughs> and of course oh it, was awful, it was awful for them because it, it sort of put me in a rather advantageous position because i had been sort of inconvenienced and offended by this you know dreadful action so it, it sort of definitely gave me a lift up in the conversation and, and I had a, a guy with me who was a wonderful I mean my own interpreter and and, and, and he was trying to translate and, and tell me in Chinese what some of the muttered exchanges were between the Chinese who were so embarrassed by the whole incident god it was it was memorable I guess I guess the, the 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 main question of of what of what has happened to Hong Kong is is was China ever um going to respect the joint de declaration was was the joint declaration sort of constructed with the hope that the Hong Kongers would somehow manage to to have have the tools for their own independence or I honestly think that the um the sort of British side felt they had a moral obligation to the Chinese you know, to the Chinese residents of Hong Kong. I mean, they really did what went with that, with this huge moral obligation, that what the British had given to the people of Hong Kong should be preserved, which, of course, I, I think the Chinese are hugely shocked to discover how virulent the inhabitants of Hong Kong were in wanting to sort of hang on to their special identity. Because, I mean, the narrative... The narrative for the Chinese is very much, you know, we we were you know we we were oppressive colonialists, not democratic liberators. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting because I I I grew up in in Singapore, which in many ways was a sort of little sister to Hong Kong. It 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 was fully independent unlike unlike hong kong but there was the the kind of understanding that hong that the the shadow of beijing loomed large over hong kong and that it may not stay that way forever i mean was was it the understanding um back then uh uh, I'm not going to ask you to uh, to speak on behalf of chris patton and and, and other people but what but was there a sort of sense that you guys were handing hong kong over to the Chinese, and it wasn't going to be a happy ending. Well, I, 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 the answer to that is I'm not sure. I'd be very. I mean, I, I have talked with Chris about it occasionally, um, and I think, I think in in those people who who had some understanding of China and the Chinese leadership were pretty worried about you know, the extent to which the Chinese would respect the agreement. Um, but as I said, I just don't think any of them expected it to fall apart with quite the speed that it did and in the spe spectacular way that it did. And um, I, I mean, I, I don't think any of us really expected the Hong Kong people themselves to put up, you know, such a sort of demonstration of dissatisfaction with the government of Beijing, but um, 
I mean, certainly, my I've I've been to Hong. I you know I went to Hong Kong quite a bit after the joint declaration, really before these problems started. I mean, my last visit was probably in like 2010, 2011. Um, and I, I was going to Hong Kong most years. Uh, and actually, I gave a couple of talks at Hong Kong University. And I do remember very well talking to a lawyer who had for years worked in Beijing, I think, Anyway, one of the major Chinese cities, but no, he was in Shanghai. He was he, he had offices in Shanghai and offices in Hong Kong. Uh, and he said to me, Richard, one thing you must understand fundamentally about the Chinese attitude to the West is the Chinese do not understand and do not accept win-win. They only understand we win, you lose. Um, and he predicted then that the joint declaration would fall apart. And, and, and I remember going to a meeting uh, which was organized by Hong Kong University uh, with some very influential and wealthy uh, Chinese, uh, Hong Kong Chinese businessmen. Uh, and uh, I mean, I. I remember having a conversation with them, and this is maybe 2009, 2010, expressing concern about the Chinese attitude and the fact that the joint declaration looked fragile even then. Um, of course, they would, you know, they would protest and say, oh, no, no, you, Richard, you've got it wrong. But uh, I mean, clearly, we hadn't got it wrong. I think we, we saw early on the signs that things were going to go badly. And of course, now you've got this massive exodus. Yeah, a, a huge, huge brain drain from Hong Kong. And that time that you that you were there back then, you know, I guess we 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 didn't see Xi Jinping coming. Uh, who knows who who could have been the the next leader of 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 the Chinese Communist Party? Maybe could have taken Beijing in a slightly different position to that than than she. We also the other thing that we didn't we never saw coming was COVID, um, and of course when the most recent round of of protests in 2019 started, uh, triggered by this extradition treaty bill, uh, which a lot of Hong Kongers feared was going to be used by Beijing in order to claw back dis dissidents. Um, who had sheltered in Hong Kong? Uh, those protests were strong and they were huge, and there and it was like 2014 all over again. And what really sort of uh, snuffed that movement was COVID-19 and the pandemic and and the Hong Kong police after the security law was implemented uh, under the guise of uh, of COVID-19 basically made protests pretty much impossible. And and so it's. It could have been so different in Hong Kong, potentially. Yeah, well, it just shows you the power of an autocratic state to, you know, reverse social process and, uh, you know, the Chinese attitude to to eradication of, of, of SARS-CoV-2 uh, has been, you know, quite extreme. And, of course, it has been used, I think, politically as an element of control in Hong Kong as well. And certainly talking to people who have experienced this firsthand, 
it's been gruesome. I, I mean, I think that the people of Hong Kong, particularly the young people, and, and, and like Samuel Chu, who you interviewed, God, they were courageous. Um, because to sort of stand up to the weight of Chinese authority uh, like that r requires, you know, massive sacrifice. I mean, it's been ghastly. I mean, I certainly wouldn't go to Hong Kong now. Um, uh, and yet, you know... Why? Well, I, I think I, I I would just be... <laughs> well, the Chinese would, because of who, 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 who I am in my past, would take a sort of probably excessive interest in my presence there. Um, and... Uh, I know, but that's 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 something that's always been um, I've always been curious about um, with you because your uh, your your career is, is public knowledge. Uh, how does that impact you in traveling to different places? Can you go to Beijing? Can you go to Moscow? Are there any places you can't go? What happens um, when you do go? Well, I think the situation is that it would be sensible for me to ask advice of the government before I go to, as it were, countries that would fall into the category of controversial. Um, I think ultimately I'd be a free agent and could make the decision, but I would probably be asked very, very clearly and strongly not not to go, not to... Uh, I mean, the problem for someone like me is that very often... A country with whom one is having a tough problem, if you turn up in that country, or if you did, they might try to use you as a sort of unofficial back channel. Although you've got nothing to do with officialdom, and and all that does for the government in the UK is complicate the situation. Um, mm. I won't go into detail, but they uh, don't understand retirement in Ch in China or Moscow, do they? Once once a spy, always a spy. Well, not the same way, and I I, I mean through third parties. Actually, I I am not going to give you. I have been invited to go mm. back to China. I wouldn't say quite frequently, but on several occasions, with very sort of you know tempting invitations. Um, coming through third parties, saying you know we we, we so much would like you to come back. Um, and the general. And why have you not gone? Well, because I think the, the 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 official advice to me was, we would prefer it if you didn't go. It's hard to stop me, but I don't want to be seen as someone who. Um, and of course, I've been very outspoken on a number of Chinese so, so issues. That, yeah, I I, so I know you the, have. You've been very uh, outspoken, the, the, uh, which which is why which is why I ask why not because is it. Do you, do you choose not to go because the British government rather you didn't, or would you worry that they might, you know, lock you up in a room and put a torch in your face and ask you some uncomfortable questions? I mean, well, I you, well, I, I don't think we're quite at that stage with the Chinese. I think they would be quite careful about how they treated you. Um, uh, I, I think they, they they wouldn't act sort of in an extreme form. But, you know, they'd be pretty fed up with me, you know, because I was so outspoken on things like Huawei. I'd be very outspoken on the pandemic. These are all issues which are crucial importance to them in terms of their international reputation and how they're regarded, you know, globally. Um, and, you know, here am I shouting from the sidelines saying, you know, to understand China properly, you have to look very critically at their behaviour in a number of areas. 
and their behaviour in a number of areas has been pretty appalling. And we on our side, you know, have been naive. Uh, you know, don't forget that our own government was incredibly naive in the way that it regarded China. Mm. And do you think Hong Kong is going to be a complete uh, uh, extension of the Chinese mainland? And, and do you think it's there already? Yeah, de de definitely. Mm. It's already there, mm. largely. Uh, I, I mean, it, it, what, what's left of what the British created is skin deep. I mean, it, 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 it's, it's disappearing, it's going. And I mean, what's extraordinary is the rate at which whole families, uh, except maybe the elderly, because it's too late for them to move, are, are piling out of Hong Kong and coming, well, going to Australia, going to the United States and coming to the United Kingdom. That's it for this week's One Decision. Thanks for joining us. Don't forget to subscribe so you never have to miss an episode. From me and the team, thanks for listening and see you next time.